thanks for joining us at Keys for SLPs, opening new doors for speech-language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals, patients, and caregivers to discuss therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field as we discuss a variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Each episode is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs and has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com. We are offering an audio course subscription special coupon code to listeners of this podcast to earn ASHA CEUs. Type the word KEYS for $20 off. This subscription gives you access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With hundreds of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it's only $59 per year with the code word KEYS. Visit speechtherapypd.com slash keys and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Welcome. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of Keys for SLPs and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. Gabrielle Howard receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. She is a member of the National Student Speech-Language Hearing Association Executive Board. And now, here's a little bit about our guest today, Gabrielle Howard. Gabrielle is the current president-elect of the National Student Speech-Language Hearing Association. She's originally from North Carolina and received her undergraduate degree from Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia. She is a first-year master's student at the University of Pittsburgh with a concentration in pediatrics. Her areas of interest include language disorders and fluency. Gabrielle first became interested in speech pathology in high school after working with a child diagnosed with a learning disorder. Welcome, Gabrielle. We are so happy to have you here today to talk about student success and the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here today. Gabrielle, it is such an honor to have you here as president-elect of the National Student Speech-Language Hearing Association. And as SLPs, we love to talk about pronunciation. So for all the SLPs out there who have heard your organization pronounced differently, myself included, can you set the record straight for us and tell us the correct pronunciation? So the correct pronunciation is NISLA. However, due to the different dialects around the country, specifically more so in the Midwest, a lot of people pronounce it NISLA with the H in the beginning, but it is NISLA with the H at the end. Okay. Well, thank you. And yes, I am in the Midwest, but I first heard about the organization when I was in California and was even an officer of my local chapter, and we were pronouncing it differently. So I'm so happy that you pointed that out to us, and we now know the correct pronunciation. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So as you kind of previously mentioned, I'm from North Carolina. I went to undergrad at Hampton University, and I'm currently at the University of Pittsburgh, Some other little personal things about me kind of in a nutshell is I love listening to music, reading, sewing is one of my favorite things to do. I started doing it when I was really young and it's kind of one of the things that I'm looking to integrate into practice as I kind of transition into my career. Yeah, those are kind of things about me in a nutshell, hanging out with friends and all that stuff, just kind of your average you know, 20-something-year-old. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I look forward to hearing how you plan to integrate sewing. We'll have to talk about that sometime. Yeah, of course. Because that is a little hobby of mine as well. All right. So how did you first learn about the field of speech-language pathology? Yeah. So when I was in high school, I did this internship in my hometown. And part of what we did was go out into the community and provide books for children in underrepresented or underprivileged communities. And we would host book buddy events. And one of the little girls I worked with, 
I just really connected with her. And I found out later that she had a learning disorder. And I told my mom about it. And she said, okay, I know you've kind of been into education, but you're not so sure. You should look into speech pathology because, you know, they work with kids who have different learning disorders, language disorders, and speech. And I did. And I thought it was really interesting. So I decided to pursue that when I got to Hampton. And I was also fortunate enough to go to what's called Honors Visitation Weekend. And it's a program for seniors in high school to come to Hampton for a weekend and sit in on classes related to their major. So I sat in on a phonetics class. Yeah. And I fell in love with it. I thought phonetics was so cool. And I met the professors and they were really nice. So after that, I was set. And when I stepped foot on campus in my first intro to communicative disorders class, I was hooked. So, yeah. Oh, that is awesome. That is so great to know that you learned about the field in high school. I know for myself, I didn't really learn about the field until Mm -hmm. after college and even a few years after college. So that is wonderful that you learned about it at such a young age. Do you remember how your mom was familiar with the field? Was she, was your mom a teacher? Actually, I should probably ask her. She wasn't, she's in healthcare, more so like the biology side of healthcare. That's a great question. I'll have to ask her, but yeah, I'm very thankful that she did know about it because without her, I don't think I would have known about the field so early. Well, I'm so glad that she did and that you did. So that's how you decided to become an SLP. And so you were just what, like 17 or 18 at the time. Yes. Good for you. All right. So what areas in the field of speech language pathology interest you? Right now, my main interests are definitely language disorders. That just kind of clicked with me. I really enjoy learning about it. I had some clients with language disorders and I liked creating activities for them and doing treatment with them, as well as fluency. And one thing about fluency that I really like is the counseling aspect of it and kind of encouraging, not necessarily elimination of the disfluencies, but kind of coping mechanisms and not looking at it so much as a disorder. I just really liked that about fluency as well. Well, that's great. Now, as an undergraduate, did you have or were you able to observe fluency clients or did that come in graduate school? Fluency came in graduate school just this past semester I did some diagnostics as well as treatment of fluency, and I really, really enjoyed it. It is such a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful Mm -hmm. area of focus to really help people. So I must say we are going to be having a whole fluency podcast series next spring, starting in March. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. So you'll, you'll have to watch out for that because you do know speechtherapypd.com is free for all students. So yes. I, did I, I think I've told you that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, check that out for you. It's an easy way to learn. Mm-hmm. Okay. So fluency and language disorders. And so you are, and as I said in the, in your bio, you're really focusing on pediatrics. Yes. Have you had adult hours, adult therapy or diagnostic hours yet? Not yet. However, I am also looking forward to getting experience with adults and I'm very open to learning about the different methods we would use for treatment of geriatric patients in contrast to pediatric patients. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. They're uh, both wonderful populations. That is one of the great things about our field. When you do get trained in both down the line, you can work in both areas or, you know, switch from one to the next as long as you keep up those CEUs and stay current. All right. So, and at some point in your, I guess it would have been at the end of your senior year, at the end of your undergraduate career, Mm -hmm. you decided to join the executive board. Can you tell us about the process of joining the NISLA executive board? Yes. So my mentor, my undergrad local NISLA chapter advisor encouraged me to apply. It wasn't really on my radar. I didn't think I would get selected. But I held two offices in my local chapter. I was a community service chair and then president. So she really encouraged me and said, just go for it. You're very qualified. And they reached out to the school and said, we really want some of your members to apply. So I did. And I went through the process and 
fortunately, I was selected. And recently, I was able to meet everyone in person who's on the executive council at the ASHA convention. And I'm just very grateful to be in this position and surrounded by so many people who are passionate about our fields, about advancing our fields as a student and even going into their career as certified SLPs and AUDs. So yeah, it really all just stemmed from having a really amazing support system that pushed me out of my comfort zone to apply for this position. Well, we're so happy that you did and you're doing so well. Just for those listening, because it might be interesting for some SLPs who have students working with them or for students who are listening themselves, what is the actual process? So the applications open around in the spring semester, I believe around February or March every year. And there's a certain number of positions open. So there are some positions that will be exiting office in 2022 and other positions will be coming in office in 2022. So it really just kind of depends on what's available and all of the position descriptions and everything is on the Nestle website. So you can read those. You can even reach out to the executive council members who hold that position and get in touch with them, ask them about that. So it really just starts with kind of understanding what the position does and deciding to apply for that position. Wonderful. And so you apply for a specific position. You don't just apply to the executive board, but you apply to a specific position on the executive board. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, thank you for letting us know that. Okay. So switching gears a little bit from NISLA, just in general for speech language pathology students today, what issues are important to students today? And what do you think are the biggest challenges that students face today? I think some of the biggest challenges that students face today, especially in graduate school, is the transition from undergrad to graduate. It's like the transition from high school to college. You have to figure out new ways, new strategies to study, and you kind of have to meet all new people and all new professors. So that transition can be a little rough on some students, especially when you're going to a place you've never been before with people you don't know. And there's just a lot of feelings of uncertainty as well, especially when you come in not knowing what exactly you want to do. And it definitely causes a lot of stress for students because we feel like we have to know what we want to do coming in. And that's just not the case. I think one of the beautiful things about graduate school is that you are exposed to so many different experiences and it's okay to change your mind. But a lot of times we think coming in that we have to know exactly what we want to do and we have to stick with that. And you don't. It's better to be open to a lot of different things because you may think, you know, you really, really like aphasia coming in and then you work with a child with an artic disorder and you're like, oh my gosh, I love that. So it's just about being open, but that definitely does cause some stress. It's a little hard transitioning into grad school and also being in a pandemic still is tough. So you started graduate school fall of 2021, right? Yes. Okay. So for the pandemic for you, you were in your junior year Mm -hmm. of undergrad. And then what happened? So did you go all online in, in the spring of 2020? Yes, you're exactly right. My junior year, we were completely virtual. Well, the remainder of my junior year spring semester, all of my senior year, I was virtual And I was so excited to come back in graduate schools, being in person. However, it's not exactly the same because we're still wearing masks and we don't really get to know everyone as much because we are still taking all of these precautions. So it's still a little tough. Mm -hmm. So you met all new people in masks at the beginning of the year. Okay. All right. So while you're inside the building... And in the clinic, you were in a mask. Mm -hmm. Do you guys ever have the opportunity to have outdoor classes or the opportunity to not be wearing masks? We don't have outdoor classes, but in our building, actually, there's a little outdoor patio space. So when it's really nice outside, we can go out and eat and take our masks off. 
And if we do have them off inside, we're still taking the precautions and distancing ourselves and everything. But it, it takes away a little bit of that personability, really getting to know someone. That's a little tough too, especially again, going to a place where you don't know anyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Our new normal. It would have been hard to imagine this in 2019, but right. you are thriving. So, so that's <laughs> good to know. Teaching everyone resilience, right? So how about clinical work during the pandemic? So you were at the point of doing observations, I imagine, when the pandemic started. Yes. So I started doing observations in person, and then that switched to completely online. And fortunately, there are a lot of programs, online programs we can use for observation one that I really liked that we use was Master Clinician. And it just has, you know, pre-recorded videos of sessions, all different kinds of sessions with pediatric, geriatric, different types of disorders. And we watch and answer questions about them. And that definitely helped build observation for me because I was able to actually rewind and watch again. Whereas in person, if you miss something, you miss it. So that definitely helps seeing those little things that happen in therapy. And yeah, that definitely helps with observation. And then transitioning into my last year of undergrad, I was able to participate in teletherapy. And that was really an experience. My first time actually providing supervised therapy was on a computer. I never thought it would happen that way, but it definitely opened my eyes to why teletherapy is so important because even in the midst of a global crisis, we can still reach our clients, patients, and families. Yes. And I feel like teletherapy has taught us so much about ways to reach people Mm -hmm. in a different way. We couldn't have imagined being able to have therapy with someone years ago Mm -hmm. who didn't have access to a clinic, didn't have a car, didn't have someone to drive them there. So now it is it is great that we are able to reach people where they are, especially underprivileged people. All right. So then as you started in graduate school, has your therapy been in person or online or a hybrid approach? So my therapy has been in person, which I really like. This was my first semester providing in-person therapy. And it's such a different experience actually getting to interact with clients And I've just, I've really been enjoying it a lot. So what do you prefer, teletherapy or in-person therapy? I personally prefer in-person therapy. However, I appreciate teletherapy because it is so much more inclusive for those that we cannot reach in person. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So what has been your biggest or what are your biggest challenges as an undergraduate and then as a graduate student? Or you can answer it just as a student in general. What are some of your biggest challenges? For me, maintaining a job while in school is definitely one of the biggest challenges. It's not just facing me, it's facing so many of our students, both undergrad and graduate. And I think one of the biggest things is that we want to prioritize school, our schoolwork. However, it's always in the back of our minds that we have bills to pay and we have groceries to buy. So it's hard to just completely say, I cannot work anymore because it's like looming over you that you still have other responsibilities outside of school. So it's definitely an inner challenge that so many students face that it causes a lot of additional stress on so many of us. So that's one of the biggest challenges I've been facing recently, as well as, again, you know, the pandemic, still taking those precautions. And when you hear that still people around you are getting sick, it just adds to everything else that is Mm -hmm. just sitting in your head. You don't know what to do. You're trying to keep living life, but you can't help but think that, okay, you know, people are still getting sick. What do we do? And yeah, it's just, there's nothing else I can really say besides it's just a lot that is weighing on us that we have to think about, prioritize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's, it's good for professors to understand the stress that students are under 
both mm-hmm. financially and the stress that the pandemic has caused and all the stresses that were here before the pandemic. So, but it does sound like you have had some good professors and mentors along the way. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to go back to just asking a question about maintaining a job while in graduate school. Right. So when you looked into graduate schools for in-person, not virtual options, are most of the graduate schools still two-year programs, one year of academics, externship in the summer, and another year of academics with your externships mixed in? Or are there opportunities to spread it out over three or four years so people who need to work can work? So all of the schools I applied to had that first model with the academics mixed with the externships being full-time. However, I do know, I know of one person right now who is part-time. So those options are available. I cannot really speak to them because I'm not 100% sure about what is available. However, I do know that they do have those options available at some universities. Okay. Okay. That's good to know. Because it is hard for people, you know, who have all those other expenses to mm-hmm. participate in a two-year program with the limited ability to work outside of school. So, and I know you're working outside of school during the school year and now on your school break. So yes. <laughs> it's definitely a challenge. It is. But, you know, I think it's all about keeping a positive mindset and just kind of looking for the light at the end of the tunnel and knowing that. I'm going to be able to pay my bills. I'm going to be able to eat if I do this. And it's just finding ways to keep a smile on your face. And that you have. You are very positive. So that comes across very clearly. I wish this were a video episode because people could see your smile and your positive attitude. Okay, so transitioning from undergraduate to graduate work, you talked about transitioning from working for a grade to working for a career. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So for me personally, I really felt a shift in my mindset entering graduate school, especially within the first few weeks, maybe the first, yeah, first month or two about, I noticed that in undergrad, I was still learning. I was still studying, but my main reward came from getting that grade seeing a high grade in A was the best thing for me. And that was kind of how I received validation for, okay, I know what I'm talking about because I got an A. Whereas in graduate school, it's different. In undergrad, it's more so, okay, it was in the textbook that this is what it said. So Mm -hmm. that's what it is. Whereas in graduate school, you're connecting so many different pieces of a puzzle and it's really about critical thinking. So that transition was a little harder for me. But fortunately, now I'm kind of in a place where I'm okay if I don't get an A. And I feel a reward when I am able to say, oh, well, this happened. So obviously that has a connection to this. And I can start to put those pieces of the puzzle together instead of just thinking to myself, well, it says this in the book. So that's what it is because it's so different. Each case is different. There are so many different aspects. And that's really what is the main difference between, I would say, coursework and undergraduate versus graduate school. Okay. So really honing in on your problem solving and critical Mm -hmm. thinking skills, because that's what is needed in the field. Right. Well, that's great. So you've mentioned some different mentors along the way. Can you tell us how you feel supported by your professors and mentors in undergraduate as well as graduate school? And if you'd like, you could even mention a certain mentor if you want to. (laughs) So my mentors, they're definitely like the backbone of my academic support system. Since I've stepped on campus in undergrad, my professors quickly became my mentors and they have encouraged me all throughout undergrad to, you know, just keep going, to keep going. Of course, yeah, go to grad school, but look for opportunities beyond that. Don't just stop there. One of my mentors, specifically my undergraduate local chapter advisor, she is the one who encouraged me to go to Pitt. She's the one who encouraged me to apply for the NISLA executive office. She's the one who encouraged me to apply for all these different organizations that have helped me get here today. And 
that is one thing I love about mentorship in general is because your mentors see so much potential in you that you don't see. And because of that, it opens so many doors and it's just an incredible thing I love so much. And even now I can still call my mentor at any time and she always answers the phone and I love that. And we can (laughs) just talk hours. So it's great to know that even though I'm not in undergrad anymore, that she is going to be my mentor throughout the lifeline of my career. And transitioning into graduate school, the program at Pitt has so many amazing people that I can just knock on their door anytime and we can sit down and have a conversation. They're incredibly supportive. If I'm feeling stressed out, I can go to their office and cry my eyes out and they're going to listen to me and they're going to provide me different ways or different suggestions that I can maybe alleviate some stress. And then they're going to say, okay, well, we had this conversation. Now let's follow up in a couple of days. They're not just going to say, okay, well, I helped you. See you later. They're going to follow up with me and make sure I'm still doing well. And I love that about my program. And then Nestle. I mean, mentorship really is something that is essential, I feel, for anyone because I think it brings out the best in people, especially I'll I'll mention again, because your mentors see potential in you that you may not see. So it, it makes you want to reach these things and do better and do the same for other people. So as you are being mentored, you become a mentor to your mentees. So oh, it's, that's it's great. Like really paying it forward. Action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've had such a positive experience with mentors and professors along the way. And you're currently being a mentor for some other people younger than you. So have you considered becoming a professor down the road? Yes, I have. I'm not sure what I would want to teach yet, but I definitely have considered returning to a university to teach. Yes. Well, that's great. They would be lucky to have you for sure. (laughs) Okay. So another thing that you mentioned as far as a challenge or a difference between undergraduate and graduate work was the role of working as part of an interdisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. So how have you learned about working as part of an interdisciplinary team in graduate school? So one thing that was emphasized to us in one of our courses was the role of interdisciplinary teamwork. So we learned that, you know, we work close with PT, OT, ENT, even the primary care physician. And when working on IEPs, we work with the school counselor and teachers and everyone. And I think that can be a challenge because, Not everyone fully understands the role of their people within the team. So I think in order to make this be of most benefit for our clients, patients, and families is to thoroughly understand what everyone's role is, what they do, and to learn about it and respect it and figure out a nice balance to be a benefit for the person we're serving. And coming into graduate school, I didn't know that our field was so interdisciplinary. And I think that is really awesome that we get to work with a bunch of other professions. I think it's important to take time to learn the roles of everyone else, again, to be of benefit to the person we're serving. Well, that's great. That's great. In your coursework, have you worked on advocating for the field of speech language pathology as well? I know it's important to understand roles of other people on the team, but also advocating for your role on the team? So in coursework, yes, especially in group projects. I think that's probably one of the first ways we learn how to advocate for ourselves in academia. I will say, though, I have learned more about advocacy through Nestle. Advocacy is one of our big things, as well as even through working with other students, not necessarily in group projects, but maybe when we feel as though, as a collective, we don't understand what's going on. All right. Well, as you go out into the field as an extern this summer and eventually as a CFY, what would you like your supervisors to know? I would like for my supervisors to know that a lot of us feel inexperienced coming in. And that is exactly the case. We are inexperienced. We've never done this before. 
And the dilemma that kind of goes on is we know we've never done this before, but we feel like we should be just amazing at it. Like we're going to do it one time and it's perfect. But again, that's just not the case. So I think something that really helped even with my past placement was that reassurance that you've only been doing this for one semester. You're not going to be perfect at it. It's going to take years for you to really perfect what you do. And the reassurance definitely helped me to get into a mindset of I don't have to be perfect as long as I am actively striving to be better and growing, that that's okay. So yeah, I would just say to a supervisor that we feel inexperienced and we just kind of need that reassurance that it's okay. We're not going to do it right the first, second, maybe even the third time, but it's okay as long as you're actively trying to do better, to be better, to learn more. Exactly. All right. Good advice to those supervisors. Let's remember how we we were when we were <laughs> graduate students or externs. Yes. Everyone's a little bit nervous, right? Right. <laughs> Nerves, I think, is probably the number one feeling in grad school. Just you feel nervous a lot, especially in the beginning because, you know, you come from so many different backgrounds and some people have more experience than you do in certain areas. So you might feel like, oh, wow, like I don't know enough. This person has all of this experience that I don't have. And what am I going to do? But chances are that person feels the exact same way you do. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it can be a little troubling at first kind of going in, but Once you've switched to that mindset of we are all in the same boat, we are all beginning this process together, you start to feel a little better. You start to feel like you can reach out to someone who understands something better than you do, and they can help you with that, and you can help them, and you can both mutually benefit from your experiences. Mm -hmm. And those fellow grad students will be your support network throughout your career, as well as the mentor. So that's exciting. To think that, you know, you start intimidated a little bit at the beginning, but those people are people who you'll be able to rely on Mm -hmm. for advice and support throughout your career. It's a very exciting time in your life, Gabrielle. So let's talk a little bit about NISLA. So when does your term as NISLA president begin? Right now you are president-elect. Is that correct? Yes. So I officially became president-elect on July 1st of this year, 2021, and I will transition into the position of president on July 1st, 2022. Okay. All right. Tell us about your experience so far. What have been some of the highlights of being president-elect? I would say the biggest highlight was actually meeting everyone on the executive council in person. We met over Zoom over the summer, which was great. However, actually meeting them in person was even better because everyone on the executive board is amazing. They're so passionate about our fields and just listening to them speak about what they want to do and the differences they want to make, why they decided to apply for the executive council is amazing. So that has been definitely a highlight meeting everyone I would say also building my relationship with the current president. I definitely look up to her because she is so poised. The way she speaks and carries herself is amazing. That's one of my favorite things about her. She has amazing ideas. And she, again, joined the executive council with the vision of advancing our fields in so many different ways. And I love that as well as our national advisor, our board of directors. They're all just amazing people who are incredibly supportive and want to see us accomplish everything we set out to do, not only in our positions, but also in our careers. That is wonderful. So it's been a great experience so far, and you're only really a little bit more than halfway there in in your first year. So what do you look forward to in the second half of being president-elect as well as your term as president? My second half of president-elect, I look forward to really being more involved in the process of kind of transitioning into president. So one of my roles as president-elect is to observe the president 
And we start to slowly transition into the responsibilities of president towards the second half of my term as president-elect. So I'm so excited to start attending these different meetings and creating itineraries, checking in with other members of the board. I'm definitely looking forward to that in my second half of my term as president-elect. And as president, there are some initiatives I want to start within the executive council, as well as as a whole, just pitching these ideas to the rest of the executive council in the NISLA office to kind of see if we can reach our goals as an office through these plans. Well, I'm excited to hear about your progress along the way. So I'll definitely be keeping tabs and seeing what you pitch. I have no spoiler alerts right now, right? (laughs) Right. All right. So let's talk about, I think it's interesting for students who are part of their NISLA chapter, their local NISLA chapter, to understand what the national NISLA executive council, what their strategic plan is. So can you tell us a little bit about, maybe it might be helpful right now to, to kind of explain the difference between the local chapters and the national chapters, and then we can get into the strategic plan of the national organization. Right. So we have local chapters and the national office. So local chapters are housed within universities and that chapter is its own entity. So they create their own executive board, their own amount for dues, their own community service initiatives. And the national office may provide different ideas. We provide support and how the local chapters are connected to the national office is through our student state officers, which I love that. It provides so much more opportunity for involvement and leadership within the national NISLA office. So each state is assigned to student state officers, which they reach out to and communicate with all of the local chapters and I remember being a local chapter president and being in touch with my student state officer, and they would let me know about the different scholarships available. They would say, hey, you know, don't forget National Nestle is having this event coming up. We hope to see you there. So that was kind of how we would be reminded of all of the different events and everything going on with the national office. So, yes, they are two separate entities but we do support one another. Okay. The dues then are different for the national and the local chapters. Yes. Okay. All right. And for the student state officers, they're assigned to each state, but are those elected positions as well? How does one become a state officer? Yes. So to become a student state officer, you do still have to apply. And typically you would apply in the state or to be the student state officer for the state in which you attend university. And we try to have one SLP focus, one SLP focus, and one AUD focus for each state. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. All right. So now that we understand a little bit more about the local NISLA organizations or chapters and then the national organization, can you tell us a little bit about the national NISLA strategic plan? Yeah. So our strategic plan is what we base all of our initiatives around. And the current strategic plan has three points. The first goal is to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion. The second is to enhance member understanding and engagement. And the third is to facilitate collaboration and growth. So under our first goal of increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion, we try to create ways to increase student multicultural engagement and actively seek different methods to better understand the needs of our diverse student populations. So we may do this by encouraging our student state officers to reach out to local high schools and let them know, you know, hey, speech pathology and audiology is a career that's awesome and amazing. And this is why you should join to, you know, reach out to those underrepresented populations to increase that diversity factor that we definitely need in the field. Under member understanding and engagement, 
we promote different legislative advocacy to kind of emphasize what we need in the field to better serve our clients, patients, and families. And we also provide biannual updates. And we want to increase different opportunities for leadership, which is, again, why I love student state officers, because it provides so many different opportunities for leadership. And that's awesome. And under our last goal, we want to encourage engagements with other organizations and entities like the National Black Association for Speech, Language and Hearing or in Basla and other multicultural constituency groups. And those include the Asian Pacific Islander, the LGBTQ+, the Haitian Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, Native American Caucus, as well as the South Asian. So we want to let our students know that these different groups are available to join, you know, a community of people that you may want to be in touch with. Wonderful. Wonderful. And so is the strategic plan, I imagine it's reevaluated each year. And so next year, this could be your strategic plan. You know, you could continue with it or you might have some other goals. Yeah. So about every two years, we take a step back and look at everything we've done to achieve these goals, you know, what might need to be enhanced, what might need to be taken out. So yeah, we do keep track of what we've done to actively achieve the goals we've set for our organization. Excellent. Okay. And that kind of leads us into diversity. So can you explain why diversification in the field of speech language pathology is important to populations served by SLPs? and why it is important to support a diverse population of graduate students. Yes. So as people who work in the fields of speech, language, and hearing, we serve a very diverse group of people. And I think it's important that we be a reflection of those we serve. And we should do that by seeking out a diverse group of students, starting at the high school level and going into these areas heavily populated by minority students and encouraging them to join the field so that we can increase the diversity within speech, language, and hearing. And to support a diverse group of graduate students, I think that diversity, that reflection should also include academia as well. And actually, research shows that students learn better from teachers, professors who look like them. So I think that just shows how important it is to increase diversity. And that will benefit our students, that will benefit our patients, clients, and families. And it will benefit us as professionals and aspiring professionals as well, because we will learn to appreciate and understand the differences between our colleagues and our, our clients and patients and families and gain a a real appreciation for what makes us different. And I think that's just really an important thing that we need to seek out. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that diversity within your graduate program creates a much richer experience when Mm -hmm. you are able to communicate in a classroom setting or in a group setting with people who are like you, as well as people who are very different from you that only serves to promote diversity. So let's talk about your graduate program just as an example. So how many graduate students, so it's it's a two-year program. So like in your cohort of first-year students, how many students are there? We have 38 students. Okay. So Gabrielle, can you describe the diversity of your class? Yeah. So as I mentioned, there are 38 students in my class and we all come from very diverse backgrounds in regard to our undergraduate education, where we come from, even in the United States, our interest in the field, things like that. And we all appreciate the diversity and we kind of use that as a benefit and as an advantage to help each other out and to really begin and continue to appreciate the many different areas of diversity. Oh, that's great. So what's the makeup of your class? The makeup of my class consists of all people who identify as female. Okay. Okay. So we do still have a way to go in gender diversity as well as racial and ethnic diversity in our field. Absolutely. It is nice to know that ASHA is working on that as well. I know there is a special committee for gender diversity. All right. So let's switch to you a little bit. And can you tell us about your first clinical experience? So 
So my first clinical experience I got in undergrad and that was with teletherapy. I believe I mentioned this before I had a partner and our client was on the autism spectrum. And that was a really great experience as a first experience, kind of seeing how flexible and how adaptable you have to be to go into this field. My first clinical experience in graduate school was at a children's hospital, an outpatient clinic, and I had a wide variety of cases. Some were on the autism spectrum, some were articulation, fluency, and I really loved how diverse my caseload was. And I appreciated how my clinical instructor, we call them CIs, how she she didn't necessarily ease me into clinic practice, but she did give me support when I got there. So that definitely helped a lot. And I think my favorite part about my first clinical experience in graduate school was the diversity and was kind of being fully immersed into everything that goes into being an SLP from coming up with lesson plans to paperwork to just the collaboration with other SLPs that work with you. It was really great. So your first clinical experience as a graduate student was in an outpatient clinic. Is that a pit outpatient clinic or is that like an on-campus outpatient clinic? It was community. So Pitt actually doesn't have an on-campus clinic. So all of our experiences are within the community. Okay. Okay. Wow. You really jump in right from the very beginning Mm -hmm. without having an on-campus clinic. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great. Tell us about a clinical challenge that you experienced and how you overcame that and how your supervisor helped you. The first challenge I can really think of was the first time I worked with a child who used an AAC device. And I went into it thinking that I was going to love it and it was going to click and I'm good with technology and this is going to be amazing. And then I got there and it was like a deer and headlights. I really struggled with it. And it was hard for me to connect with those clients because it was a lot easier for me to connect with other clients that didn't use the devices. But with the clients that did, it was a lot harder for me. So that was very challenging because I felt like I couldn't run the sessions well. So I had to kind of reevaluate the situation and take a step back and tell my CI that I just want to observe you and begin to tiptoe my way into this experience because I want to make sure that this is benefiting our client as well. And if I feel like I can't provide what needs to be provided for them, then I need to remove myself and then ease my way back in. And she was very understanding and grateful that I told her and communicated with her because she could tell that I was uncomfortable and she just kind of wanted me to express that to her instead of her just removing me without me expressing that. So it definitely helped a lot. And now I feel more comfortable. And towards the end of my experience with those clients, those were some of the best sessions I had when I did initially mention taking a step back. And then when I felt comfortable enough, those clients were interacting with me and way more than they had before. So I, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Well, it really seemed like that helped you learn to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's such a good message to other undergraduate and graduate students that it can be intimidating as a student to advocate for yourself to a supervisor. But one thing that you said that I really liked was that it was going to be better for the client for you to take that step back and recognizing that that's why we're here, right? That's why we're Mm -hmm. learning. And that's what we're doing after we have our C's, right? We're here for our clients. So always keeping that client in mind. And even if it can be a little intimidating or maybe embarrassing to say, I don't really understand. It's always good to keep clients first. So good for you. That's great. All right. So that kind of leads me to my next question. So for undergraduate students who may be listening or for SLPs who are mentoring students, what is your advice 
for applying, preparing, and succeeding in graduate school? The graduate school application process is by far one of the most stressful processes I've ever been through. And I think so many people can agree with that. I would say my biggest advice for applying would be number one, figure out where you want to go in regard to location. So for me personally, I grew up in the South. I did not want to stay there. So I applied to schools that were in the Midwest and in the Northern region. And that helped me narrow down my options. I would also look at if the program has what you are looking for. So if you are more into research, you don't really want to be a practicing clinician, then I would look at programs that are more research-based. And if you are really wanting to go into school-based or medical, look at programs that cater to your interests. And that also means really doing research. And that research includes looking at the curriculum, looking at who your professors are going to be, what kind of research they do, so you can potentially think about who you may want to reach out to as a mentor and who can really help you succeed the most. I would also reach out to your current mentors or friends, family members, people who can read and review your essays and someone who is going to be completely honest with you and tell you, hey, this essay is great, but you need to change A, B, and C. Because often when we write about ourselves, you may miss some very important things. So you may write A, B, and C, but your friend or your mentor may say, but what about X, Y, and Z? And you're going to say, oh, I forgot about that. So don't forget to reach out to your mentors, have people who can read and reread and edit your essays. And also, you know, just take time during the process to reflect on where you are because you made it to the graduate school application process. And that's an accomplishment in and of itself. So sometimes it's overwhelming going through it. But when you look back over the past, however many years of your educational experience, just think about that you made it here. And that's an accomplishment in and of itself. So I think going into that mindset, it eases a lot of the nerves that comes with the application process. And yeah, and I think in terms of succeeding in graduate school, keep your mentors. I still have my mentors from undergrad and they are some of the most amazing and supportive people. Also create and maintain relationships with your classmates because those are the people that are going through the process with you. Those are the people who you are going to go to for study groups and questions. And I think the most important thing is to remember to take time for yourself and again, reflect on everything that you've accomplished thus far and use that to say, if I did all of this, then what's stopping me from doing all this other great stuff in the future? And sometimes it's really hard and I find myself asking, why am I here? Like, is this the right field for me? And then I remember where I am, how I got here and why I decided to join the field. And that really keeps me going and having a really amazing support system that comes from my current classmates, my old classmates, mentors, family, and friends. And I think that is the key to success in graduate school. Well, excellent, excellent advice. And I like how you have shown a, a wonderful example of maintaining those relationships with your mentors from undergrad and graduate school. And it's great to hear that you are so supported as well as your classmates are supported. And I like, again, how you highlight your classmates because as I think we've mentioned before, your classmates will be with you throughout your career as mm -hmm. supporters. So, okay, well, tell us about, you're about to enter your second semester in graduate school. Yes. So you, you just have one semester under your belt, but a very important one for mm -hmm. sure. What has been the most notable experience in graduate school so far? I think my most notable experience has been probably my dysphagia class because it was my favorite class of first semester. And it really emphasized that you don't have to know what you like when you come into 
graduate school because I came in thinking 100% I'm doing pediatrics and I still want to do pediatrics, but I just knew that anything medical was going to be an absolute no for me. And I went through this class and loved it. I think it is so fascinating and cool, just incredibly interesting. My professor is one of the best I've ever had. And I think his knowledge and passion for that area of speech language pathology was quite inspiring. And I think that made me want to learn more about dysphagia and want to really do well in the class. So I think that's my most notable experience so far because we hear in undergrad, you might know what you want to do, but always be open to new things. And that definitely almost made me change my mind. And I was kind of like, hmm, maybe, maybe I like the medical part. So I think that was definitely one of the most notable experiences I've had so far. Well, that's great. And I love the advice about keeping an open mind. That's good advice throughout your lifetime, especially in graduate school. So will you have the opportunity to have some clinical experiences on the medical side? Yes, I believe so in my second year. Okay. Does everyone in your graduate program have that opportunity to work in a hospital or a SNF setting? Or is that something that is selected by each individual? Yes. So one of my favorite things about how clinical experience is set up at Pitt is that you do get to rank like where you want to be the most versus where you want to be the least. However, you will get all of those experiences regardless. So for example, even if you want to be in the school the most, you're going to get a school placement, but you're also going to get that medical placement, whether that be pediatric or uh, geriatric. Okay. Okay. That's great. And what kind of opportunities, is it a two-year program for everyone? Or I was talking to another graduate student at another school, and she was talking about a graduate plus program, which allowed people who were like me, who worked in a different field and were coming back to school and entering the field of speech language pathology. Is there a graduate program for those people or do they need to just do what I did way back when, which was I had to take a year and a half of prerequisites because I hadn't had the undergraduate coursework and then apply. So are you aware at Pitt or at other schools of a, they called it a graduate plus program? Yeah. So my program is two years. It's five semesters. And some of my classmates actually went through a post-bac program, a post-baccalaureate program, which is sounds similar um, mm-hmm. to the Graduate Plus program where they took prerequisites before entering the graduate program. So okay. that is, it's available at Pitt and I believe at other universities too. My undergrad university, Hampton, has a two-year graduate program and a three-year graduate program. So for the students that maybe were a different major in undergrad and decided to switch, they can do the three-year program. So they do have the year of doing the prerequisites primarily, and then the rest is kind of the graduate coursework. Okay, that's great though, but they are in the graduate program, but it's a three-year program. That's really nice versus going back, doing the prerequisites and then Mm -hmm. applying because you never know. And that can be very stressful for people. And it's an investment of time and Mm -hmm. money to go back and take those prerequisites. So if you knew that at the end of that time, you were automatically in graduate school, as long as you maintained the required GPA, et cetera, that's a better situation. So Mm -hmm. anyway, well, that's great to know. And it allows a little bit more diversity in our field, not just people who had the undergraduate communicating years. So that's great. How about, do you know if there are programs available for people who are part-time? Yes, actually, one of my National NISLA Executive Council members is in a graduate program part-time. I'm not sure on all of the details, but I believe instead of two years, it probably takes maybe three or four to complete the program, but there are some part-time programs out there. Again, if that's something you're looking for during the application process, don't hesitate to 
even reach out to maybe the graduate program director or someone in the faculty or staff who can answer these questions if there are part-time options available for you. But yes, there are some available. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that also helps diversify our field if people are Mm -hmm. able to work while they're going to graduate school. So great to know. Well, thank you for sharing all this information. You are a wealth of information and inspiration, Gabrielle. Thank you so much for having me. This was a, a great experience. Well, I'm so excited that you agreed to talk with us and it's been so fun getting to know you. I know that you have a bright future ahead of you and there are going to be a lot of lucky clients or patients out there who have you as their SLP. And I know that you already have contributed to our field as the president-elect of NISLA and I know you will be a great contributor in the future. Thank you so much. Well, you are welcome. Thank you so much. And as a reminder, before we go, I want to remind you, Gabrielle, to let your fellow students know and any supervisor who may be listening that speechtherapypd.com is available as a free resource for students. So for students who are enrolled in graduate courses, all of our audio courses, video courses, webinars, they're all free to students. So you just have to sign up at speechtherapypd.com and give your credentials to get that free resource. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and more. Thanks for your positive reviews and support. I would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. Keep up the good work.